Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning. We're going to look up several passages, but let's start off with uh, Gospel, not excuse me, the, the Epistle of Romans, chapter 8. We're going to look at some passages. I've been preaching on the doctrines of grace. They are, of course, biblical doctrines, and of, they matter very deeply. All, all really should believe these five points, uh, co- commonly known as Calvinistic, but we should never regard these five points as being, as Spurgeon said, barbed shafts which are thrust between the ribs of fellow Christians if they don't understand them as of yet. Instead, we should look upon them as being five great lamps which help to irradiate the cross, give us a better understanding of what Christ did for us on the cross. The five points of Calvinism came to be summarized by the acrostic tulip, and of course, today it's usually... Uh, referred to as Rupep, and uh, which, of course, as R.C. Sproul says, ruins the flower garden, but nonetheless, today we're going to be looking at uh, irresistible grace or effectual calling. Um, You missed something on that one. But. All right, so today we're going to be looking at irresistible grace. Uh, so when considering irresistible grace, there is something that needs our attention, which is uh, the nature of the sovereignty of God. In other words, is God active and goes after people, or is he passive like a concerned bystander? Some say that man is in control and therefore can accept and reject God's offering of salvation. In other words, God is viewed as waiting and hoping that people will come to believe. Others say, those who believe in the doctrines of grace say, God is sovereign and actively pursues the elect and will inevitably bring them to salvation, that God's children will be found by him. One of my professors, Eric Alexander, called this fourth point prevailing grace, where it says, for example, where it says in Matthew 16, 18, and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Douglas Wilson, writing on irresistible grace, said that there are are already two resistible processes in place that we all actually have experienced. The first one is creation. Creation, by definition, is irresistible. God created out of nothing. God spoke and creation came into being. The heavens and the earth, the stars 
and pebbles, trees and galaxies, toads and lions were all fashioned as a result of the divine word. We actually know from the word of God and from what we see, especially in the gospel of John, that nothing was made apart from Jesus Christ. For it says in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. We also know that the worlds were framed out of that which cannot be seen. When we read the book of Hebrews, we find that by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So that's one part of understanding the irresistibility of creation. We had nothing to do with it, in other words. It came into being. Another one that we actually were involved with is our own birth. Birth is, by definition, irresistible. We are beings who at one time, had no being. Just think for a moment about your physical birth. You didn't decide to be born. You didn't decide when to be born. You didn't decide where to be born. You didn't decide what race to be born. You didn't decide what sex you would be. You didn't decide what your eye color would be. You didn't decide anything with regard to your physical birth. You played no part in it except that you experienced it. Your birth happened to you, and now you are experiencing life because of that birth. There is also a third irresistible process, and that's the spiritual new birth. Just as you had nothing to do with your being born, so you have nothing to do with being born again. Now, just take your Bibles for a moment and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse number 3. And it says this in verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, that one passage of Scripture, God in his mercy needs to cause a person to be born again, if you are going to be born again at all. Just as God caused you to be physically born, so God must cause you to be born spiritually. Just as you could not determine your physical birth, so you cannot determine your spiritual birth. Only God can do that. Now, the question that comes up is the question of how does God gather his children? How does God gather his children? That is the question. 
And so there are three points that will fall, fall under this one. And the first point is that of how does God gather his children? By calling them with the gospel. That's the first thing. In fact, the passage of scripture I asked you to turn to in the beginning in Romans chapter 8, in verse number 29 and 30, we get this chain that the Bible gives us. It's kind of the unbrokeable theological chain. And in verse number 29, it says, For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of a son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So in this passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, we see the rich fullness and completeness of God's work toward the believer. Really, this can be illustrated by this golden chain. All he foreknew, he predestined. All he predestined, he called. All he called, he justified. And all he justified, he glorified. So this first one is that God gathers his children by calling them with the gospel. All right, we read the passage of scripture, but just highlighting the words there. He also called. And these whom he called, he justified. In, in that unbreakable chain, we see that in this uh, event that happens, we know that God had a foreknow something. He had a predestined something, someone, and then he had to call them. And then once he called them, he justified them. And once he justified them, he ultimately will bring them to glory. So, the operative word in our text would be the word called. Why? Because the text says, these whom he called, he also justified. That means all the called are ultimately justified. So how are we to understand the word called? There's two definitions or distinctions in call. The first one is, there's an outward call of the gospel. While we, ha- while we uh, actually hear with our ears the gospel, even you and I, the first time we possibly ever heard the gospel, we either ignored it or outright rejected it. We just said, well, that's good for you and that's not good for me at that particular point. Either way, it's an outright rejection. Matthew chapter uh, 22, verse number 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. See, all who hear are invited. That's, that's why we are to preach the gospel to everyone. We are to invite everyone to Christ. Every single person we could ever talk to, we should invite to Christ. But this call is ineffective by itself. But because all men are totally depraved and hate God, they resist this call and the work of the Spirit. Another great passage of Scripture that 
is in the Word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. Uh, it says this, and listen to what it says. It says, in verse number 26 of 1 Corinthians, it says, chapter 1, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world, God of the world, the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man, no one may boast before God. So the reason the Lord has done it this way is to exclude any possibility for boasting. No one can claim anything when it comes to, to their salvation. No one could say, I did it, or I raised my kids this way, and I, and I take all the credit. Nobody, a preacher who preaches a great, clear message, nobody takes the credit when it comes to salvation. We are not saved by anything we have said, thought, or done in our condition of death. So by our experience, we all know that not everyone will receive the call of the gospel. Not, that means not everyone will be justified. Because not all believe the gospel when they hear it. But thank the Lord... In my case, at least I heard the gospel at least three times before I trusted Christ, right? And so you can have a, a similar story. Maybe you heard it more than that. But see, the point is, is that the gospel is going out and people are hearing it. But it doesn't mean that they're believing it. It could mean, too, they receive it with joy. But as the parable goes, that the joy quickly gets dissipated by the troubles of the world, the care of the world, the desire for riches. So, of course, the question that we would have is, why don't people come to the gospel when they hear it? Why don't they? Well, I've covered a little bit of that, but I think Acts chapter 7, verse number 15, gives us a real good uh, understanding of that, where it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Actually, several things are brought up here in this particular passage. The first thing in Acts 7, verse 51, is that the reason why people don't believe the gospel, because they are hard of heart. They have a stony heart, a spiritually stony heart. It says in verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked, they have a stiff-necked type of heart. In fact, this word right here is only used uh, 1% in the New Testament. And uh, this word is stressing simply that you are stubborn, you are obstinate, you are rebellious, you are disobedient people. That's why people don't believe it. And then the second thing in verse 51 of Acts chapter 7 they have an uncircumcised heart. Now, no label could have been more exasperating to these Pharisees, to these Jews, these Jewish leaders, than to refer to them as having an uncircumcised heart. These Jews bore on their flesh the sign of 
the covenant. Of course, that is physical circumcision to show their obedience to the law. Yet, they were disobedient to the part of the law which demanded a responsive heart to God's fuller revelation. So in that passage of Scripture, those are two ways why people do not come when they hear the gospel. Of course, another reason would be one I already mentioned. Uh, Well, in Acts chapter 51, there is, is secondly, that people don't believe the gospel because they have a heart, their heart of hearing. Notice what it says. And it says in verse 51, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Resist is an old word that means to fall against or to rush against something. They're resisting it. They are, they're holding it off. They refuse to believe it. So the resistance here is not just against, in the passage of Scripture, Stephen, but against God himself. What great sin is committed when people resist the Holy Spirit by refusing to listen to the Word of God. This was not just slow comprehension. This was an inability, not to comprehend at all, in other words. It's like the prophet Jeremiah uh, was right on the money when he diagnosed the people's spiritual problems when he wrote uh, in Psalm, excuse me, in Jeremiah 6.10, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, Their ears are closed, and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. And there's many who fall into that category today. They do the same exact thing. Their ears are closed. They've made up their mind about their uh, spiritual existence or destiny, or they don't think about it at all. But nonetheless, their ears are closed, and they just just don't listen because they really can't listen. They don't know what to listen for. And, of course, a third reason could be that of of, uh, what I mentioned already. People are just spiritually dead. They're not just wounded. They're dead. It says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And there's no better word then dead to describe man in his fallen condition. Now, ultimately, dead means to be ignorant of God. People don't know God like they ought to know him, like John 17, verse 3 says, this is eternal life that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Not to know God is death. And life that is non-Christian is living death. So you can be alive physically, but completely dead spiritually. What they don't know, or what they do know about God, what people do know about God, what does it say in Romans 1? They suppress that particular truth about God, and they twist it into what they think it ought to be. Like Romans says, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. 
but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Just giving you a picture of what the Bible says about who we really are, right? We all, we all ought to know that. And remember that because of man's fall into sin, people are spiritually dead. Unregenerate people can no more choose Christ or spiritual truth than a rotting corpse can play football or debate philosophy. There's no middle ground between being alive and being dead. Unregenerate people are not just sick or handicapped or impaired, they're dead. W.E. Best, writing on regeneration and conversion, wrote, you may use all human persuasion possible, but you cannot give spiritual life where death reigns. God alone, by a creative act, can bring life out of death. Spiritual argument, arguments to an unregenerate person are only warm clothes to a corpse. All right, so there's the outward call. The outward call goes out to everybody, and we know that everybody doesn't respond to the gospel when it's first given. But there is a second way we understand this word call, and it's the inward call usually taking place when the outward call of the gospel is made, whereby God, the Holy Spirit, calls people to himself effectually by working a miracle in their hearts, bringing them from spiritual death to life. So that means that the Holy Spirit transforms the heart, the mind, and the will I believe that we can understand this passage, that's Romans 8.30, that it is referring to the inward call, because the inward call ends up, a person ends up being justified, that means being made right before God, and then a person ends up being glorified. So that call that we're talking about in Romans is the call that happens inside of us. So In that call, it always results in justification. It always results in salvation. Now, of course, how does God do that? By the word of God, by the word of truth. Now, another passage of scripture, without turning there, is James 1.18, which says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's how God brings us forth. So this passage really enforces or reinforces being called by the word of God. The Lord doesn't save anyone apart from his word. He cannot, the spirit of God will not bypass the word of God to save people. It's got to be the word of God that comes to you in power and demonstration of the spirit of God that gets a hold of your heart and gets a hold of your mind and your will, and it does something very specifically there. Another passage uh, that I have on the screen is in Hebrews, where it says, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, and notice what it says, those 
who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. In other words, when somebody is genuinely called with this inward call, something happens. Something's changed. And in this case, they receive a promise. And what is that promise? Eternal inheritance. So in other words, this internal, effectual call results in something that we can actually grasp onto by faith. That what God has done in saving someone, he also will promise to give them an eternal inheritance. So Jesus effectively obtained redemption by himself, and he did so for those who are called. So that's the first way God would gather his children He'll gather his children by calling them with the gospel. That call goes out as a general call, and then it ends up for those who will finally believe as an inward call. All right, now I'm getting to the place where I'm saying that this inward call you can no longer resist. This inward call you can no longer reject. This inward call, when God calls with the gospel, is the time in which you surrender, and believe. Now, the second way that God gathers his children is by drawing them by the power of the Spirit of God. So God uses the Word of God, and the Word of God is backed up by the Holy Spirit of God, who is the author of Scripture. Now, to look at this and examine this point a little bit More specifically, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I want you at first to focus in on one passage, and then we'll look at the whole context. So this next point that we have is that God gathers his children by drawing them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, by means of this special, effectual call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. He is not limited in his work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is he limited by depending on man's cooperation for success. The Spirit of God is not depending on those things. The Spirit graciously causes the chosen or the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly to Christ. Now, how does the Spirit of God draw people? Well, the first part of that is that the Father actually draws them, I'm saying it like this, to the bread of life. The Father draws them to the bread of life. Now, if you just think about bread for a moment, we could think about it in a spiritual way or in a physical way. When, you, when, when we put bread on the table, that bread is there for not to look at, not as a decoration. It's there to take and eat, right? Well, when we think about when Jesus is referred to as the bread of life, that's the same thing we ought to think about. We ought to think about when Jesus is laid before somebody. It's, it's not for anything else but for someone to take and eat, make it part of them. That's why when we come to the Lord's table, the first thing it says in the first element, which is what? The bread... Take and eat 
all right, because we're appropriating what God has given us in this realm of salvation that Christ was given to us as the bread of life for us to take it so we can have life. Now, look at verse number 44. This is the verse I want to focus in on and look at the words in it. It says in John chapter 6 in verse number 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I just want to focus in on that passage first. All right, now there's several words in that passage. The first word is can. No one can come to me. Now, this word is, a, is uh, linguistically a negative absolute. The word can refer to ability. In other words, our text is saying no one has the ability to come to Christ on their own. Another word in our passage is unless the Father draws him. This word unless, this is a acceptive clause. This means there must be a prerequisite or a necessary condition that must be met before someone has the ability to come to Christ. Something, in other words, has to happen before anyone could come to him. It is saying none of us has the natural ability to come to Christ unless the necessary condition is actually met, unless God does something, unless the Father gives it to him. And of course, there's a third word in our passage, and it's the word draw. He draws him. There's another, this, this term here, of course, means either it can be translated to drag, to pull, or to draw. Other passages of scriptures that actually use that same Greek word are, now some people say this word also means to woo, to woo people to Christ. Well, um, I wouldn't take that particular uh, definition of the word, and the reason why is because in passages, other passages that use this word, it actually means to drag, to drag someone. Like in James 2, 20, 2 verse 6, it says, but you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. Now, that person's not coming to court willingly when they're being dragged to court. Right? And then, of course, in Acts 8, verse number 3, but Saul began ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. He wasn't wooing them to come. He wasn't enticing them to come to jail. He was actually dragging them off to come to jail. But then there's another word that is used in John chapter 6, verse 65, where it says, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So in other words, this word drag could, could uh, some people have interpreted as being wooing or enticing. I don't believe that's it. Uh, the Augustinian word uh, definition would be to drag or to draw. Maybe drag is too uh, strong a word, so the word draw is a better word. And of course, even in the Kittle's New Testament Dictionary of Theology says this word means to compel by irresistible force. So in other words, that's how the Father is drawing us. He's overcoming things 
in our own personal life, like our flesh, like the world, like Satan himself, and he's drawing us by an irresistible force. Now, again, some may ask the question, how does the Father draw people? Well, a quick, true answer would be God always draws people by the preaching of the gospel. We must say that the preaching of the gospel is the instrument that God uses to draw people to Christ. However, we must be reminded of the context in which this passage sits. Jesus was addressing the people of Capernaum. He had already preached plainly to the people of that town. He preached to them the woes of the law. He performed many mighty works in the town. He performed many miracles amongst the people. And Jesus gave them the word of God. And they were following Jesus, but there was something missing. They were following Jesus, but they weren't believing in Jesus. There's two different things. People can actually follow Jesus and not understand what it means to be really saved in Jesus Christ. They may be following him, but they really don't believe in their hearts. There's no change. There's no effectual change where God overcame their stubborn will and their deafness and their deadness and actually drew them to himself. Now, saying that, I want you to go back to John chapter 6 and let's read the whole context. Look what it says in verse number 24, that Jesus reveals really the really the real motive of their heart in this passage. And notice how it's packaged in verse 24. It says, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Jesus said to them, verse number 35, drop down to verse 35, said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Yet do not believe. You see me, you have seen my miracles, you have heard the word of God, but you don't believe. Look at verse 41. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he says, I am the bread, of, bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they said all, and they, and they, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes 
has eternal life. In verse 48, I am the bread of life. So three times in the passage of Scripture, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down out of heaven, and I am the bread of life. So in other words, these people were seeking physical things from Jesus. They were seeking to be fed by Jesus, but they were not seeking Jesus as the bread of life, as the one who can, as the person takes the bread and eat the bread, can actually have eternal life. They were not seeking him for that. So in other words, that these people were following Jesus, but they were just not believing in him. Now, saying that, another point to make is this, that that word draw, and then, of course, this verse of Scripture in Titus, that the Holy Spirit draws them. Not only the Father draws them to the bread of life, but as the Father draws them, now the Spirit of God draws them making them that sinner willing to believe. If you notice what it says there in Titus, it says, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord is regenerating someone, making them born again, and then renewing them, and it's all done by the Holy Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit of God draws the sinner by making them willing. And when the Holy Spirit works, he influences the heart so the people or the person is glad to obey the voice that they once despised and rejected and resisted. So we really don't know how the Spirit of God does it. But he does it. Now, there are some visible apparent things when he does do it. When the Holy Spirit of God enters into the person's heart, he shows the sinner who has already a good opinion of himself and feels that he can walk into heaven because he has been a fairly good person. That's basically the answer or what people go on when it comes to, you know, if you ask most people, are you a good person, what are they going to say to you? Probably 99% of the time they'll say, I'm a good person because I did this, this, and this. I don't, I don't kick my cat. You know, I don't, don't do stuff like that. You know, I walk old ladies across the street. You know, whatever they say, they say things like that, but they're really convinced that somehow God has these divine scales in heaven and that hopefully their good is going to outweigh their bad. And in their mind, their good does outweigh their bad because they really have never done really bad things, Right? But they don't realize that just by rejecting the gospel is the worst thing you can possibly do. So the Holy Spirit really exposes the sinner of their cancer. He uncovers to them the blackness of their heart, the defilement and the corruption that is in their heart, and the rebellion that has always been there in their heart. The Spirit of God makes that known to them. No one could be saved unless they see themselves a sinner, right? So that's what he does. And then when the sinner begins to see that, the ugliness of their heart, a person begins to say, I thought, I never thought I was like that. I never thought I, those things were sin. 
my sins against God are too great and too many to count, they begin to realize and calculate how many times they've lied or how many times they've stolen something or how many times they have not worshipped God, how many times they've used God's name in vain. So they're guilty not only of one point, but all the points of the law. And so now they're under condemnation. And and who does that? The Spirit of God brings a person to see that they're condemned under God's wrath. And so the Holy Spirit of God reveals to the person that their debt is too great to work off and that there is nothing they can do to make themselves right with God. The person's heart sinks in despair, thinking, I am hopeless. Nothing can save me. Then the Spirit of God does something else. He comes and shows the sinner the cross of Christ. See, that's the demonstration of God's love. It's when the Spirit of God shows that person what Christ did for them on the cross. And they begin to make the connection that, wait a minute, if this person named Jesus died in my place, took my condemnation that I should have taken, and then satisfied the justice of the Father and forgives me of my sin and washes it away and then takes my sin and nails it to the cross and gives me his righteousness and puts it on my account, well, then he's the one I want. He's the one I could go to. So they, they are convinced. The Holy Spirit of God convinces them of the, of the cross. He gives them ears to ear and eyes to see, to look at the man who died to save sinners. And you feel at that point that you are a sinner, but you also know that he's a savior. What would you want to do if you needed to be saved? Go to someone who could save you, right? Don't go to someone who can't save you. You can't save yourself. No one could save you. I can't save you, but Christ can save you. So the Holy Spirit of God enables at that point the heart to believe and to come to Christ for salvation and eternal life. And when God gives us the grace of a new heart, the first thing we do is to repent and believe. That's the first thing we do. It's just like in the book of Acts, the, the first chapter, second chapter of the book of Acts. Remember when Peter was preaching, right? He was preaching specifically to the Jews there. And what happened when they finally connected that they crucified Christ and they were guilty of that? What did they say? When they heard this, it says in the book of Acts, They were pierced where? In their heart. What was that? Conviction. Oh, no, we're the ones who are guilty. We're the ones who are under condemnation. We're in trouble. What do we do? And Peter and the rest of the apostles and and the brethren that he was speaking to says, yell out, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that means that faith and repentance and belief are gifts given to us by God. They are, yes, actions we perform, but which require the prior gift of life. You have to be given life first, before you can have faith and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Now, if the old heart were capable of repentance and faith, which really, which is all God requires of us, then why do we need a new heart? 
If we could do it on our own, why do we need to have this heart of flesh made into a heart, this heart of stone made into a heart of flesh where God can mold it and ply it and shape it and convict it? See, if we can do it on our own, then, hey, let's get saved, right? But we can't do it on our own. That's the point. We can't do it on our own. So in the word of God, we find out that uh, man's greatest need is to have a new heart. That's his greatest need. In fact, when it comes to conversion, conversion is therefore the work of God in extracting our hard hearts and giving us hearts that are soft to the, to the salvation he has really worked for us in Jesus Christ. That's what he does. And there's probably no better passage of scripture that brings that to mind than the next one and that's ezekiel that passage of scripture in ezekiel where it says i will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you i will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and i will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, if you notice in that passage of Scripture, it says, I will, I will, I will, I will do it. God's power is the one that actually accomplishes it for us. It says in the book of Acts, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life believe. So see, when the person comes to Christ by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has a sweet drawing that happens in their heart, that the sinner comes to Christ with a full consent without realizing a secret influence has been exercised in his own heart, that God behind the scenes. matter of fact, we, we don't really know this, until we start studying the Bible. It's, I call it a family secret, all right? See, you thought you believed. I repented, believed, yes, I did this, I said a prayer, I walked out, well, whatever you did, right? All right, you produce fruits. Then you, later on, you find out, wait a minute, I had nothing to do with my salvation. My salvation was based on something that happened before the earth was to create, the universe was ever created before I was ever born. God took care of this. And then you step back and say, wait a minute. How great a love must the Lord have had towards sinners to be able to do that and then bring me the gospel and then make me alive to believe it. And I didn't even know all of it was happening behind the scenes. So see, if the drawing influence of the Holy Spirit had not been exercised, there never would have been or never will be any person who either can or will come to Jesus Christ. You got that, right? George Bishop, in his book, The Doctrines of Grace, gave a succinct bottom line on this point where he wrote, and I quote, man can no more turn to God than the dead can sit up in their coffins. He can no more originate a right desire than he can create the universe. God and God, 
the Holy Spirit alone, by sovereignty, by special interference, I like that, calls dead sinners to life and creates within them the desire in their hearts to actually believe in Christ. Now, that's what God has done. That's how God brings us to himself. He does it by the word of God. He does it by the spirit of God. But there's one other thing that I want to look at, and it's this. It's a third way God brings his children, and that's by bringing them out of death into life. Even though I've been mentioning this, I just want to highlight this. Because it's all over the word of God. The, the famous passage of scripture in John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, you have, in other words, you have to be born again before you can see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again before you can enter the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God or see the kingdom of God before you're born again. So what has happened before someone can see the kingdom of God is to be born again, and what is the prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God? Regeneration. Regeneration regeneration is the prerequisite, the necessary condition for seeing and for entering the kingdom of God. In other words, regeneration or being born again precedes faith. Regeneration is a necessary condition before faith. See, the Spirit of God is heavily involved in someone coming to Christ. This passage of Scripture in John 6, verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. There's nothing in our flesh that we can profit in in trying to save ourselves or add to what Christ had done on the cross. There's nothing we can do. And then it says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. So in other words, it is the spirit of God that is the one who can bring real spiritual life to us and raise us spiritually from the dead so we can be saved. And then another passage of Scripture, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 in verse number, in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, it says, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, the Spirit gives life, and when He has not given life, it is not present, and cannot be present. A great illustration, of course, is the raising of Lazarus uh, in John 11. And you know the story. And To give you really a mental picture, it it would be likened to Lazarus while dead in the tomb. What does Jesus cry out to Lazarus, who's dead? Lazarus, come forth right? That's what he says. And as we know, that is an effectual call. As it awakened Lazarus from physical death, Jesus didn't merely invite Lazarus out of the grave or suggest the benefits of so doing. 
waiting for Lazarus' decision on the matter before he proceeded. Jesus didn't first have to secure the cooperation of Lazarus before Lazarus would come to life. See, Lazarus was dead and could do absolutely nothing. The raising of Lazarus was not a cooperative effort between Christ and Lazarus. It was the power of Christ's word that called dead Lazarus to life. So Jesus called Lazarus from the dead. It was entirely an act of divine mercy. It was as well as an act of divine power. So powerful was the call that there was no way Lazarus could have not been raised from the dead. If Jesus had not specifically named Lazarus, some have said possibly all the graves would have opened, but Lazarus he called specifically. So that means, therefore, the outward or the general call to salvation is made to everyone who is under the hearing of the gospel. The Holy Spirit then extends to the elect the special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinction, can be and often is rejected, whereas the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected and always results in conversion and always results in justification and always results in ultimate glorification. So there's a, in a sense, a guarantee to believers that when they come to Christ and Christ and the Holy Spirit of God gives them life, they definitely have life. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So believers were made alive. The very fact that you and I are believers at all is solely because of the demonstration of God's might. Many things had to be overcome and conquered by the strength of God in order for you and me to become a believer. God had to overcome our own flesh. He had to overcome our own death, spiritual death. He had to overcome all the worldly influence that were that was pounded upon us from the day of birth. We had to over, he had to overcome the power of Satan to blind you from hearing the gospel, which the Bible clearly teaches that Satan blinds people to hear the gospel. He overcame all that so you and I could be saved. And then after that, he is working in us. It said, tells us in the Word of God, believers have the power working in them. If it were not for the power of God working in believers, we would not have a desire to read the word of God. We would not have a desire to pray. We would not have the strength to put off sin and put on righteousness. We would not have the desire to be strong in the Lord in the spiritual battle and so on and so forth. Like it says in Philippians, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do of, good, of his good pleasure. So the idea that Christ 
can and will save only those who of their own free will are willing to accept them completely contradicts what the Bible says about the effective call of the gospel to those who are going to be saved. Because all of us are dead spiritually. All of us actually did not invite the truth, but hated the truth. We actually hated Christ. We dwelt in darkness. We had a heart of stone. We couldn't hear. We were helpless. We couldn't repent. We were slaves of sin and Satan. We could not see and comprehend the truth. We couldn't do any of those things. How are we going to come, overcome that by our own will? By our own strength, we cannot. So the question would be, well, will the elect inevitably come to Christ? The answer to that, yes, they will come. And they will come not resisting anymore. They will come willingly because God will open the mind for them to understand God will change their affections from hatred to love. God will give them a new heart and then take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that's pliable and willing to obey. And then God will change the will from resistant to responsive. That's what God does. So all that, I am saying that everything that we look at in Scripture from beginning to end is all of God. Salvation is all of God. And the only thing we could do is give him praise, humble ourselves under this particular truth. See, the elect are not born again because they believe. Rather, they believe because they have been born again. The new birth is a sovereign gift, and so is faith. Repentance is also a free gift that is sovereignly bestowed Because the elect now have faith, God justifies them, and they are saved, and they will be saved eternally. So in the end, if God's will is resistible, then man is sovereign. If God's will is irresistible, then God is sovereign. And I tell you what, this morning, God's sovereign, and he's going to save his people. Now, a better way to talk about this point is not to say that you, that you come because of irresistible grace, but that people come because we have an irresistible God, that God no longer becomes resistible to you, but it becomes something very much inviting. Jesus is the bread of life. You are hungry spiritually, and what do you do? You take the bread, and you get nourished And from that nourishment comes spiritual life. See, that's what the Bible is teaching us. And so I believe that these particular truths and doctrines are the very doctrines that really substantiate your faith to the point where you don't waver in things much anymore, that your doubts are dissipated, and that your full trust ends up being in God alone, right? Even now, when you become a believer, we are to do good works. But I'm not depending on my, do, my good works now to save me. I'm, depend, I'm still depending on God and his work to save me eternally. And it does and it will. And one last passage before I close, and it's this. In Jude, I don't know if you ever saw this passage of Scripture before. 
But sometimes we read the Bible a lot and we just miss things. Look at what this passage says. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And notice, to those who are called. And then look, look what it says. Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Who is that? That's us who know Christ, right? So we're, we have been called, but now we're beloved of God. We're not under God's wrath. And not only are we beloved of God the Father, we are kept for Jesus Christ. And someday we will stand before Jesus Christ as the called, the beloved, and the kept. And believe me, that's incredible mercy and grace and love. You're not going to get greater than that. So that should change your whole Christian walk. It should change everything you think about and how you think about it. And it should make you more committed believer today than ever before if you understand these truths. If you don't and you heard them maybe for the first time, then you're beginning to understand them. But I pray that you would come and understand them and grasp them and then live your life according to them because then you'll live every day under God's sovereignty. When you wake up in the morning, you're living under the eyes of God, not people, God. So everything you think, say, and do, you're going to be living under the eyes of God. If you live there, you don't have to worry about anything else because that's the only place to live. And that's where you're going to get your joy. That's where you're going to get peace. That's where you're going to get wisdom. That's where you're going to get strength to live if you live that way. And these truths help you to live that way. And God's people said, what? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. You have been so kind to us. Just to put these things in the word of God so we can know them. And so these things can bolster our faith and give us strength that we would put our whole trust every day in your hands, knowing that, Lord, you have worked from the beginning to the end to save your people, and that once we are in your hands, no one can pluck us out of your hand. And, Lord, for that, we are thankful and grateful. So use these truths, Lord, to enable us every day to live for you wholeheartedly. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.